So if you have your Bibles with you, and I I hope that you do, uh, we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, let me take a quick drink first. Before starting in a book of the Bible, which is going to be the, the principal way that Jesse and I teach through the Bible, um, and I ask for your prayers as he's already begun in the book of Ephesians. I ask for your prayers as I, uh, I labor over considering which to begin in myself. <clears throat> We're going to be sharing the teaching load in this gathering, um, but I wanted to work through a few key passages to lay a good foundation for what we're doing here, um, in part so that you know what is this gathering about and where do we claim authority and what can you see is going to be the trajectory of what we do. Uh, today is, is one of, uh, that will be central to the ministry of this church and to what we are committed to. It's the sufficiency of Scripture. Today's sermon is about the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. We're going to be in, like I said, the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3, specifically in verses 16 and 17. The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture itself is sufficient to interpret. The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture itself is sufficient to interpret Scripture. What we are affirming here also goes by another term, which you may or may not be familiar with, uh, the term sola scriptura, uh, which means scripture alone. Now, sola scriptura focuses on the sufficiency of scripture for salvation. Uh, We're going to be broadly opening that uh, doctrine more to how it uh, not only includes salvation, but also everything in Christian life and all creation. So hear now the words of the living God. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, as we're going to be faithful with doing to understand and have a right mind on what's going on in Scripture, we're going to look at the context a little bit. Um, Paul here is writing to Timothy uh, in an extraordinarily difficult time in his ministry. While most of Paul's time was spent in suffering, while writing this letter, he was facing the death penalty. Considering the timing of this letter, which dates to about 60 AD, there's a good chance this was one of his last letters. So the Bible doesn't record Paul's death, uh, so we have to look at tradition to get an idea, but there's just no way for us to be certain. This letter is, is considered one of the pastoral epistles. Uh, this just means that this letter was written by Paul to Timothy, 
who was a pastor of the church at Ephesus. Uh, Timothy also represented Paul at several churches and was even with him while writing 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, and 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. So Paul loved, he just loved Timothy and considered him a son. And when we read Paul's letters to Timothy, we have the right mindset when realizing that Paul, go, that Paul recognizes this could be very well the last letter that he writes his beloved son in Christ. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, he wrote him about how to lead the church. In Paul's second letter, which we are in today, he writes him about guarding against false teachers or false teaching and how to stand firm in the faith. Now, this is what I hope to expose to you all today as we are seeking the edification of Scripture in our lives and the leading and it outworking our obedience in the church. First, what God-breathed Scripture is being referred to in this passage. Second, how Scripture is used for teaching. Third, how Scripture is is used for reproof. Four, the difference between reproof and correction. Five, how we use Scripture for training. And lastly, what it means to be complete. And we're going to do this today, as we will consistently in any passage, by looking at the passage and staying there for the most of the sermon. So first, <clears throat> what scripture is being referred to by Paul? Stay in the text with me here. All scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God. The scripture here is the entirety of the inspired word of God. The exhortation here is that when you open up the book of Genesis and read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Turn to Leviticus and read the law for burnt offerings. See in Psalm 2, about the rule and reign of the Messiah. When reading about dragons and seven-headed beasts in Revelation, God breathed. God breathed. And when Timothy reads Paul's letter to him, same God breathed word. It's what we refer to as the biblical canon, or the 66 books of the Bible. When Timothy reads from any and all of the inspired books of the Word of God, he is to treat them all as the following, breathed out by God. Paul asserts here that the Scriptures, or, or the Bible, is God-breathed. Though, though Timothy didn't have the luxury 
that we do today and are, and are nicely printed and organized and, and well-margined and, and, and fonts, he doesn't have the, the neatness and, and the ability to have those today, the bindings um, of different translations and fonts and everything else that we have, which is praise God for that today, right? But what, what he knew was reinforced by Paul here is that whether reading from the law, the prophets, the Psalms, or the epistles, that he is to consider them as words produced from air physically expelled out of the lungs of God. That's the meaning and and the intention behind the the God-breathed, breathed out by God. So we've established what scriptures, what they are, and the weight that they carry. What do we do with what we have? What do we do with this God-breathed word? How is Scripture used for teaching? This is what we do with it. And profitable, as we read, and profitable for teaching. And profitable for teaching. This God-breathed word. What is teaching? A simple example would be what I'm doing right now. This is instruction or teaching. It's the work done by pastors and teachers to shepherd the flock of God and impart skill and knowledge. How I'm teaching right now is because of passages like this that we're studying right now. I'm told as pastor and teacher, by the way, of of same instruction given to Timothy, that this God-breathed word is to your advantage. It'll benefit you. If I believe this, I will use the Bible to teach. And this teaching is not to commentate with my opinions. Far too many pastors will read a passage of Scripture and think they're teaching by telling you what they think about it. That is vanity. If you hear a lot of I think or I feels from your teachers or other teachers, they need to spend more time in that word before they teach it. Teaching is educating. And what Paul is saying we need is to be educated with God's word. And this is how this is why I'm not going to show you pictures and bring in creative visual aids for you to help you understand the sermon today. God's word says if I want to teach something to you that his word is enough. It's enough. So we've established one all of the Bible that we have today is God-breathed. Two, the Bible is beneficial for teaching others. Now let's look at reproof. How is Scripture is used for reproof? 
and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. Now stay with me on these next two. Teaching sounds nice to the hearer, but what's this word reproof? Reproof is basically a nicer way of saying correcting or rebuking more specifically. Now, reproof is fitting of a translation because of the connotation that it carries. Why don't you just say rebuking? Some translations do. But in the very next verse, which we won't get into today, but we see that he says, do all these things. In this exhortation to Timothy, do all these things with patience and teaching. So when you hear this work, this rebuking or correcting, don't have an image of an angry scowl on the face of one doing it. This idea of, of sharpness and unlovingness, this looking down with displeasure, that's not how God looks at us and that is not how we are to rebuke those in error. The ESV translate it reproof, the CSB and NIV, rebuking. Both fitting, both accurate. Paul used this same word in his first letter to Timothy when instructing him how to deal with people who persist in sin. Reproof, rebuke. He says in 1 Timothy 5.20, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Let's be clear about the exhortation here. After explaining that the Scriptures are all God-breathed and used for teaching, that Timothy should also use the authoritative Word of God to rebuke unrepentant sin in the church. but not just to the person, before the entire congregation. Why? So that the congregation can have fear or take warning. Folks, this is church discipline. And you don't hear about this really happening anymore. And it's not because sin has been eradicated from the church. Modern congregations that ignore the instruction of church discipline do so at great danger to themselves and their flocks. The purpose of church discipline is essential. It's essential for the health and proper function of the church. And as we see everywhere, Sin isn't dealt with. It permeates into everything that it touches. This is up to and including the elders of the church, which is the context of 1 Timothy chapter 5. One of the qualifications of an elder is to be above reproach. 
above reproach. 1 Timothy 3.2 The same idea is in mind here. An elder can't even be in the proximity of being needed correction over the practice of sin in his life. So, all of the Bible that we have today is God-breathed. Two, the Bible is beneficial for teaching others. Three, we are to use it to condemn sin. Let's get into the fourth point here. The difference between reproof and correction. And profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction. We couldn't just be rebuked. We need both rebuking and correction. While rebuking is an act of condemnation of sin, correcting is a work of improving or correcting faults. Someone may be rebuked for denying the divinity of Jesus or his physical death, burial, and resurrection. A rebuke would be fitting for sins like drunkenness and adultery or sex outside of marriage. You can't make improvements on your lust. It doesn't get better or lesser. You eradicate it. You put those sins to death. Correction, on the other hand, is a building up or bettering the object of correction. In this case, people, you and I, An example of correction would be admonishing another man how to better love his wife. Husbands are instructed to love their wife like Christ loved the church. You can improve on a man's effort here. Yes, buying our wife flowers and taking her out for dinner, those are loving things to do. But let's improve on that by learning the extent of how Christ loved the church. We don't want to make up our own ideas and approaches to what this God love is. Seeing her sanctified by the washing of the God-breathed word. That's how husbands love their wives. Men, are you loving your wife's that way. Are you devoting yourself to the word of God so that you can commit your life to teaching and leading your wife? Let's receive correction here and improve ourselves and each other. It is a good thing for us to do. Proverbs 12.1 says that whoever hates correction is stupid. It's not a paraphrase. Men, 
If another man desires to sharpen you through correction, to help you improve on your Christian life, including how to love your wife, and you pull back or retreat from such correction, God literally says you're stupid. Let's guard ourselves from being prideful and know that God intends correction as part of the Christian life. Correction also isn't only improvement. The the correction can be an error brought back into proper alignment with Scripture. In, In the same example of a husband loving his wife, if a man thought he was loving his wife by ridiculing her to to get her to change or or improve on something, perhaps teasing her about her clothing choices or how she performs a certain task. That correction is taking something you ought to do, love your wife, and correcting how you do that. You should love. Don't love in this way. Let's correct and teach how to love better. Timothy was instructed to correct his opponents with gentleness. The aim of correcting is leading someone to knowledge. We want them to know and obey God. The goal is always remedial, not punitive. In correction, it's remedial. We want to build up and edify not tear down. If a teacher made assertions like, doctrine doesn't win people to Christ, your testimony does, that warrants correction. We want them to know God better. We want them strengthened, not cut down. What happens when we forsake such correction? The hearers and the teachers all suffer. One, all of the Bible that we have today is God-breathed. The Bible is beneficial for teaching others. We are to use it to condemn sin. We use it to correct error or make improvements in ourselves and others. Five. How do we use this scripture for training? As we read for training in righteousness. This training is the whole of the Christian life. Education, discipline, instruction. Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. The training being done in the Christian is in righteousness. Righteousness, which is the standard for moral conduct, it is what ought to be done, what should be done. 
when we think of righteousness, it should be understood as the, the work of being made in a right relationship with someone else. While it would be right to have in mind the atoning work of Christ and declaring us righteous through his blood, it's a right thing to think, the more likely view here that we're reading is the work of covenant relationship with each other and with God. This is the love one another, bear with one another, forgive one another, make peace. Don't grumble among one another. Be of the same mind. This this is the, the covenant life that we have together and is one of God's principal ways that He works out our righteousness. When we live in this way with one another, we are becoming more like Christ. And when we become more like Christ, we are growing in His righteousness. Growing in righteousness draws us closer to proper relationship with God. And this is one of the reasons the church is essential to the Christian life. Don't forsake the gathering. God uses our covenanting with one another to sanctify us. It's why we aren't allowed to forsake what we are doing right now. Training is the work of God in us by His Word through the work of the Holy Spirit to make us like Jesus. The work is to be done among God's covenant people. And this is one of the many reasons that we stress the importance of home education and not public education. The the people that you spend your time among are the ones you are learning from and becoming like. It's the cultivation of mind and morals. And we're always tempted with the modern thought of, well, can't we have two forms of training? One over here that's academic and another over here for morals and ethics. Not according to God's word. And we're going to see that even more in a few moments. Emphasized and culminated in verse 17. God designed it so that a disciple is trained up in the context of the church by qualified elders or pastors and reinforced and lived out in the home by mom and dad. Paul even made it a point to give thanks and honor to Timothy's mother and grandmother for being the cause of his rightful upbringing in the faith. The idea of being brought up and trained outside the home by others, especially unbelievers at that, is completely foreign to the Bible. And we create this idea and it's wreaked havoc 
on generations and their faith ever since. All of the Bible. It's all God-breathed. The Bible is sufficient. It's beneficial for teaching others. We are to use it to condemn sin. For we use it to correct error or make improvements in ourselves and others. Five. We are to use it in the whole of the upbringing of the disciple. From childhood to maturity. Six. Our last point for today. What is the significance of being complete? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In verse 17, we're going to hone in on this complete equipping that the God-breathed Word accomplishes in our lives. Equipping unto completion is providing someone with everything that they need every necessary component to accomplish the task. What's the mission? To be in full union with our Lord and Savior. This is the marriage imagery God uses for us to understand His purpose for us. We are the bride of Christ. He loves us by washing us with his word. His word, as we have seen, does that by imparting truth. How do we get from lost, wretched sinners to entering glory for all eternity with Jesus Christ? How do we get there? The word, the logos. This is why the word has always been the central point of attack of the enemy. From the garden to today, did God actually say? This is what we're about to read. The most famous verse in the Bible that most misunderstand. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. John 3.16. What did he do? It is better translated and understood. For God loved the world in this way. We are not learning how much God loves us. John 3.16 teaches us how God loved us. He sent us the word embodied in the flesh. 
And the word of God doesn't just bring us to God and make us right with God. It makes us right with one another and is the method to work out our salvation in this very short life. When we distort or even deny God's word, we are breaking covenant with God and with each other. The word, the word, the word, it is central to all of life in every sphere of life. This equipping unto completion is done to the collective of God's people, His bride. Where does it begin? The appointed elders of the church. Remember the context of this passage. It is the man of God who is himself matured in the faith by the word through the work of the Holy Spirit who takes and wields that word as a sword. Knowing that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He knows. He knows because it is accomplished this work in him and is now reminded of that truth by Paul. And now he takes this word to accomplish this work as he pastors the church. Last time I repeat it here. Let it sink in. One. All, all of the Bible that we have today is God breathed. Use it with authority. Two, the Bible is beneficial for teaching. Three, we are to use this God-breathed word to condemn sin. Four, we use this word to correct error or make improvements in ourselves and others. Five, and we are to use in the whole of the upbringing of the disciple, the whole of the upbringing of those who belong to Christ. From childhood to maturity in the faith. And lastly, the Word equips us fully. We don't need anything else to do this work. To the point of completion. Having everything we need in all of life. What does this mean for us and for our church and for our lives? I want to delay this foundation 
and forethought of the work that Jesse and I are doing here in our gathering. We are utterly committed to the Word as the sole source of authority in our lives and yours. We will revere the Word as coming from the very lungs of God, binding and sufficient for every task and every decision that is made. And when we gather, and why we gather, how we worship, how we teach and preach, it will be according to God's Word and will expose God's Word, not ours. You don't need a man's intellect, creativity, or winsome personality. You need biblically qualified elders that are committed to the Word and completely dependent on it for everything. Also, where you gather as the church, listen, is a matter of life and death. Warn your friends and family about the importance and centrality of the Word of God. It is a matter of life and death. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let, this, let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would not be of any advantage to you. As we've seen today, the Word is God's work. Not just to make us right with Him, but to bring us home to Him for all eternity. He equips elders and pastors for the work of ministry of the Word. Of the Word. Which trains all who belong to God unto completion. If the word is lacking, or worse, being distorted and otherwise not relied on, you are suffering and being divided from God and his church. Every believer needs to be part of a church with biblically qualified elders who must be men that exposit the word of God as the sole means to feed his sheep. Christian, trust and rely on the word of God for everything, for everything in your life. The life you live, the job you work, the person you marry, how you raise your children, where you go to church, what you buy, how you spend your free time, how you speak, 
The Word of God is sufficient for all of it. He loved you by giving it to you. Love it, trust it, and live by it. Everything in all of life and death depends on it. The God-breathed Word. Let's pray. Father God, I, I pray for the Word to be a blessing on each person present here today. That you take what was in line with your declared Word, your God-breathed Word, you take it and impart it to us. That you transform us by it that we are subject to it, that we are transformed into the likeness of Christ. Lord, may we receive a blessing from you as we come in alignment to obedience of what you would have us do. May we know and be encouraged by your presence, by your power, by the authority and proclamation and dependency of your word. You need us for nothing. And you give us everything. It's profound to think of and rejoice in. Lord, may we be faithful to what you have called us to as saints. May we be faithful to the word that you have loved us with. Raise up your church in beauty as we gather in utter dependency on you, wanting you and needing you, and loving you. Bring us into union with yourself today, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.